From University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. Hello, and welcome once again to What We Do. I'm Chuck Luce, the editor of Arches, Puget Sound's alumni magazine, and your host for these podcasts. This week, we're discussing labor brokerage and transnational migration with Andrew Gardner, a professor of anthropology here at the college and one of the leading researchers in the field. For nearly 20 years, Professor Gardner has been working to understand how labor, human migration, economics, and globalization interrelate. His research explores conditions faced by migrant workers and the cultural and economic systems that result from the migration of millions of these workers from rural villages to urban centers throughout the Persian Gulf states. This spring, Andrew heads to Nepal and Pakistan for his latest project, a year-long program assessing the labor brokerage system in South Asia. Through interviews with brokers, migrant workers, workers' families, and others, he and his team hope to gain a fuller picture of labor brokerage and transnational migration in the region, an understanding that can form the foundation of future research and inform real-world conversations on policy, social justice, and urban development. My colleague Sarah Stahl recently sat down with Andrew to discuss the project. Hello and welcome. Uh, today we're talking with Professor of Anthropology Andrew Gardner about his latest project, a rapid ethnographic assessment of the Gulf-directed labor brokerage in South Asia. Oh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? It is a mouthful. <laughs> so can we talk about that? What is labor brokerage? What is transnational migration? Walk us through it a little bit. Well, uh, I study the what I call the Indian Ocean Migration System, and I'm actually one of the um, leading uh, uh, researchers and scholars in the world on this particular flow of transnational labor migrants. Uh, for about 20 years, I've been using uh, my discipline, anthropology, and my toolkit, ethnography, to understand and follow the labor migrants who leave their homes, typically in South Asia, but also parts of Africa, and travel to the petroleum and hydrocarbon-rich states of the Arabian Peninsula to both build and service those societies and economies. And so the labor brokerage system and what that title in this particular new project is all about is that there are um, typically men, but people, in South Asia, in places like Nepal and India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, who facilitate and connect uh, people, men and women, who desire employment uh, abroad, where the employment opportunities uh, often are, and they, they connect potential migrants with those job opportunities, but also derive uh, profit from this uh, flow of, of transnational migrants. And that juncture of this migration system, the, the labor brokers who connect and sort of sort and facilitate these movements, are kind of a black box in our understanding. It's a mysterious sort of central juncture. We know a lot uh, uh, about the situations and the contexts that these potential migrants or migrants come from and what's going on in their homes and their communities and, and these states. 
And we also know quite a bit now about what kind of circumstances and challenges and problems they and monies they earn when they're in places like Dubai and Doha or Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. But we just don't know a lot about this, this connecting pin. And so more than anything else, this particular project is designed to help unpack and uh, better understand that complicated juncture of a faraway migration system. So when you talk about migration, I think of a vast number of people moving from one place to another. Is that really what's happening? Are we talking about thousands of people of smaller tens number? Tens of <laughs> millions. Okay, that's a pretty big So uh, the, 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 really the way that I like to um, condense that idea is that migration to North America and migration to the European Union, those are the two primary flows that we see in the transnational flows that we see in the contemporary world. But the the Arab Gulf states are the third largest destination in the contemporary world for transnational movement and mobilities. And so Interestingly, for someone who's been studying that migration flow for a long time, we were always kind of in the shadow of the scholarship and the journalism around our migration here in North America, and now especially the kinds of mobilities that are leading people um, often as refugees, often as just regular labor migrants or diasporic populations, leading them to places like Europe. Over the last 10 years, with my research and a lot of other research, we've been able to sort of enhance the profile of what's happening in Arabia as well. And it's an interesting example because it's, you know, a non-Euro-American, non-Western sort of destination. So things are, are different in some intellectually interesting but also problematic ways in Arabia. What do you hope to... Well, I mean, the big questions are kind of general in some ways. Uh, how does this system work? And really, I mean, one of the key mysteries is how much money do these labor brokers take in profit uh, from these transnational movements and flows? And we don't have a clear idea if that's, you know, 50% of the monies these uh, migrants pay. 25%? Is it just a little fragment of it? We really don't know and are interested in learning more about it. Um, I think one of my personal research agendas is I'm also curious about how what misinformation and disinformation are pervade in these interactions. So as a, let's imagine you as a potential migrant, Sarah, like, are you, am I, as a broker, conveying what I know are the realities of the position that I'm lining you up with? Or is there misinformation involved? Am I deceiving you in some way or another? We're also interested in how the states, like Nepal and Pakistan, and perhaps later some of these other South Asian states, interact and seek to regulate and govern these brokerage systems. Because as it stands now, without knowing a lot about these labor brokers and how their businesses work, they are also the epicenter of a lot of uh, critique 
like everybody thinks, oh, the problem is the labor brokers. And as an anthropologist, part of my job is not only to understand the system, but to step into their shoes and understand it from their perspective as well. So I want to try to understand and embrace their position in this, you know, blizzard of, of transnational and global sort of movements and shifts. So let's maybe break it down just a little bit and kind of carry through that example of I'm a potential migrant worker. How does this system work or how do we think it works now? Well, okay. What, what happens? There is no single path uh, that a potential migrant like yourself in our imagined scenario follows. Sometimes a brother, a father, a friend sort of links you up with a job, but typically uh, someone comes around to the village, a, what we call a sub-agent, and this is someone who's working on a commission basis for the actual labor broker, comes to the village and says, there's a lot of jobs, you could be in Qatar working for so and you know, $300 a month, then we could get you going next month. And perhaps your uh, fields have dried up, the well's no longer working, your household is in crisis. Let's imagine your parents are like, well, this sounds like a good household uh, move for us to send young Sarah to work uh, as a construction worker in, in Doha. And so that subagent for some kind of unknown commission gets you to me, the labor broker, I help sort of process your bureaucratic paperwork on the what we call the sending state. So let's imagine in Nepal, mm -hmm. all of the paperwork and visa applications that are necessary for that. Maybe you pay me additional money for some training, so we teach you how to do welding or something like Is that. It travel expenses. I mean, all all the things to get. Yeah, Me that's too. rolled in there as well. And then you get on a plane, often your first uh, time on an airplane in your life, and you land in um, on the Arabian Peninsula in one of these destinations. And, I mean, I know a lot more about what happens there and the kinds of problems that migrants typically encounter. But that's sort of a, a much broader research agenda that I've been pursuing for a long time. I'm looking at how we get this process of how people like we're imagining you as a potential migrant get linked up with these positions and what happens at that juncture. So through this project, how will you do that? How, how will you find these migrant workers or potential migrant workers and brokerage agents and learn this process? Well, uh, I will use um, what we in anthropology call the ethnographic toolkit, which is really um, um, my, my, where my expertise is, and I have an enduring love for, for ethnographic methods. And what that basically means is we will be spending time, first in Kathmandu and then in Peshawar, and nearby Kathmandu, and we're going to be interviewing people and also spending time, what anthropologists call participant observation, kind of hanging out and observing how this process works. So we intend to interview labor brokers first and foremost. That's um, uh, an essential piece of the project. But we also hope to interview some, and spend some time at the recruiting centers, some of the uh, hotels by the airport where migrants are sort of processed and they stay for a period of time. 
We also want to talk with potential migrants, so people who are in the middle of this decision process, and hopefully their families as well. And so to do that, I'm relying on uh, some a research team that I have uh, in Nepal, people who I've worked with previously, including some migrants that I met when I lived in Qatar uh, between 2008 and 2010. And so these uh, individuals, uh, who very trusty uh, uh, research assistants of mine, are currently assembling a sort of plan and schedule of possible interviews that we'll be pursuing when I land in Kathmandu in two weeks from yesterday. So <laughs> no, it's, today. It's today. coming up soon. <laughs> two weeks from today. <laughs> so how, how have you been preparing? I mean, this is a pilot project. It started in August, I think, right? Um, so what have you been doing up to this point to get ready for your trip in two weeks? Um, myself and my colleague on this project, Zara Babar, who is uh, teaches at er, is a research uh, administrator at Georgetown University. Uh, she and I have been reading what little uh, um, work exists about these brokers, and we are sort of coming up with what we call an interview guide. So topics that we want to visit and issues we want to make sure that we gather information from from all of the individuals that we're able to talk to. And what we do in ethnographic analysis is we come home with this set of interviews transcribed, and then we look for the patterns and connecting threads. So if I talk to 10 labor brokers in Kathmandu and Bairahawa and maybe Pokhara, I will look at what are you know the patterns, what, what information is shared between all of these experiential data points, and then also what are the sort of strange exceptions. And that gives us sort of a picture of how this system works, but also some of the nuances and differences and exceptions as well. And that's the foundation that we write from. Now at the same time, Zara, her specialty is policy analysis. So she's going to be working on the component of the project that assembles, well, what has the Nepali and later the Pakistani state done to manage, organize, regulate, and certify these labor brokers? And what role does the informal sort of sector of brokers who are doing this kind of brokerage but aren't registered with the government, what role do they play? These are all open questions that we're going to be sort of exploring using this, the, these ethnographic methods. So I, I can't help but think hearing you talk about these differences in, in monies paid to the labor brokerages themselves, that this is sort of an indentured servitude type of situation. Is that accurate or off base? Well, I mean, I think indentured servitude is probably the one of the closest analogies that we can draw to this system, but it's, uh, you know, a contractual, legal, and normalized sort of indentured servitude. And, you know, the, those costs of travel and, and the costs of being uh, working outside your country and the mobility that's involved are the costs that are, yeah, being borne primarily by these labor migrants and their families. Now that said, I mean, like indentured servitude, for the most part, they are 
uh, entering this system and these agreements willingly, but that's where the misinformation and disinformation come in because maybe that confounds the idea of, of willing entry as well. In general, however, for you know two decades now, I mean, vociferous critics of this migration system in the Arab Gulf states have gone beyond sort of indentured servitude and called it a form of new slavery. And I really try to avoid uh, those kinds of terms that have such a iconic and historical and uh, very Western sort of moored meanings because, uh, you know, th I think this era of mobility that I think we live in today that characterizes our our petroleum-fueled world is really quite different from, from uh, in circumstances from those earlier eras. So while I recognize the parallels with indentured servitude, um, I don't spend a lot of time drawing those connections, but trying to focus more broadly on the experiences of these tens of millions of men and women in the Indian Ocean world. It's kind of amazing. Tens of millions just is an astonishing figure to yeah. me to get my head around. Huge numbers. I also can't help but notice that your two trips to Nepal and to Pakistan mm -hmm. um, are in winter break time and <laughs> after commencement, most likely. Yeah. So how does this type of project or this project specifically fit into your time as a professor and teaching professor here on campus. Yeah, well, that is certainly a challenge. Uh, and I mean, I run off on spring break and I run off on winter break and I, I you know, take time and my summers are filled with these kinds of research trips as well. Um, and, you know, of course, personally, I've noticed that over, what, uh, eight, ten years of sort of this cosmopolitan sort of research geography that yeah my my sleep is messy and my body clock is messed up but I enjoy this research I it's central to my identity I thrive with this kind of uh, these kinds of tasks I like doing and writing about this kind of research and that's really the, what connects to my presence as a professor in a classroom with the students here at Puget Sound as well. Because really what I feel my best contribution is to the, the students I teach is to encourage that, that kind of research profile in their own career trajectories as well. So I foster a lot of my students' independent research projects through summer research, I connect them with some of these peoples and networks and places that I'm already connected with. So I try to usher students in as best I can at the undergraduate level into this world of, of research. And as any student in my class knows, uh, I also draw quite heavily on this research in the classroom. So students typically like in my introduction to anthropology course they start you know like most people not quite knowing where Qatar even is and by the end of the semester they know more about Qatar than they probably need <laughs> so but but my classroom is infused with with this research and many of the microcosmic lessons and perspectives uh, and methods and, and procedures that I've developed in, in over the years in those experiences. As you've mentioned, you've had years, of, uh, decades of, of this kind of research and, and you have a certain passion for these topics. 
what excites you about this project? What are you looking forward to? Well, maybe this is a bit tangential, but when I was, uh, as you may know, uh, I took two years off from Puget Sound on a leave of absence and went and taught at the National University in Qatar. And while I was there, I not only embarked on several research projects during those two years, but I came back to Puget Sound in 2010 with uh, two large research projects that took another three years uh, to reach their conclusion. And so these large research projects um, were larger than anything I had conducted before, involved multiple universities and research teams and and assistants and survey administrators and, and data analysts. And managing this large group of people cast internationally between different institutions was really an unforeseen workload for, for me. And also as an ethnographer, it, it took me away from that firsthand contact with the labor migrants that I study and write about. And so what I love about this particular project is I've, I've, I've shorn this project of any sort of, you know, uh, institutional complexities. It's going to be me and a good friend of mine, Zara, and we're going to be talking to people and interviewing them ourselves, and we're going to work with this actually smaller set of data rather than 1,189 surveys or something like this. We're just going to have this small set of interviews to work with. And it's what I love most about ethnography is that personal connection. So not only am I interviewing these migrants, but oftentimes I'm getting to know them as people and sometimes as friends. And um, it's that reconnecting with, with, with you know, diverse humans in diverse places that really buoys my spirits with this particular project at this particular juncture of my career. Is that how you um, came to be friends with some of the folks who are going to be your research assistants and research team yes. now? Uh, absolutely. Uh, a few of these men in uh, Kathmandu uh, started as research subjects, is the cold and clinical term that we use uh, um, on in our paperwork about these projects, but started as that and over time uh, then began working. Um, I often need translation in the field because the diversity of languages is also extraordinary in my research field. And over time, uh, and working together over multiple projects, suddenly, I mean, we're friends, we trust each other, we know, you know how, how our, our minds work. In fact, uh, Dipendra, who will be um, working with me and Zara in Kathmandu, has uh, visited Puget Sound uh, twice and uh, has been, you know, here in the Northwest. So really, an extraordinary uh, um, young man. Although he's not that much younger than me, but he's still young, I guess. Uh, uh, so yes, uh, these are contacts that I've established um, over time with Nepalese migrants. Uh, and then our work in Pakistan, this will be my first trip to Pakistan, actually. And, but my, my colleague on this project, Zara, is uh, Pakistani. And so she has a network uh, from her um, previous uh, occupation there 
uh, working with NGOs primarily, and we'll be relying on her network when we're in Pakistan. So what's next? What's the next? I mean, obviously in two weeks from now, you're headed to Nepal. Um, you hit the ground running there. You're there for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you get back to campus. You have your data set. You start working right away to analyze and collect things, or do you? Yeah, so I actually have a presentation in Kuwait in March during our spring break that's going, that I've already said I'm going to be um, uh, sort of summarizing the initial findings of the Nepali component of our, the Nepal component of our our project at that meeting. So, yeah, somehow, some way, during the busyness of the semester, uh, some of that uh, work is going to have to get done. But I think, you know, this project really is going to draw on that analytic synergy between Pakistan and Nepal. So once we go back to, pa- when we go to Pakistan in June and then have these two sort of roughly parallel sets of qualitative interview-based data to uh, examine and compare, I mean, I think that's really where we are envisioning um, this project taking flight. And so that's a little bit into the future. Now, if you're talking about longer term, I mean, I have great ideas for that too. What I really want to do uh, over the long term, the next project that I, big project that I want to develop, is so much of um, our analysis of labor migrants, even here in America, but especially in the Gulf states is focused on the problems and the challenges that they face right now. And that's been a central theme of my work. And I feel, you know, proud to have helped introduce that topic to journalists and the broader global public's attention to some degree or another. But what I'm thinking I'd like to do next is to actually go back now 15, maybe 20 years later after some of my first interviews and find some of those same migrants whose terrible, challenging problems I was describing, you know, uh, in in my graduate school field work and see how they think about that experience now. And so uh, with 20 years and a, a life trajectory that could lead in a lot of different directions, how do they think about those difficult first two years as a foreign transnational migrant in Bahrain or the Emirates or Qatar? How does that fit in, in their broader life trajectory now? Because I think I've you know been very good at sort of working with people who are calling uh, attention and you know sounding the alarm about these experiences but what do they think about it in retrospect in hindsight uh, once it's in the rearview mirror of their lives do you do you see a pattern or, or do you know that people stay in these kinds of jobs or or situations beyond their initial contracts i mean is that something that Yes, they most certainly do. So um, some uh, show up for a two-year contract and face such terrible circumstances that they um, go home and never come back and often lose money in the process. Uh, Some use those two years to kind of find their footing and establish a network of contacts that allow them to procure better 
contracts the next time around or a more secure situation or a better employer the next time around. Some move between Gulf countries, but the Gulf states also, for some, function as a stepping stone to further migration. So, uh, you know, they may start with uh, five, five, ten years in one of the Arab Gulf states or some combination, and then move onward to England or Canada or New Zealand or Australia or something like that. So, so there are all kinds of pathways that people follow, and that's one of the interesting mysteries that I, I think my idea for a future project would allow me to address, is to, have, to hear about those experiences and to see how they think about those difficult times with this broader sort of tapestry of their life experiences as the backdrop. Professor Gardner, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to hearing more about your research and this project as it progresses and perhaps following you on Instagram <laughs> to see where your travels are taking you next. Uh, what is your Instagram handle? Uh, Zigzagger with three R's on the end. So, uh, But you can search, uh, search for me by name, I think. Uh, so, yeah. We'll look it up. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us And today. thank you very much. It's been great talking with you guys, and uh, hope we can do this again sometime. We look forward to it. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes. 